Hi, I'm Moon Unit Zappa, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Hey guys, today we're going to explore some music mysteries. My guest today is a producer, music historian, consultant, and an award-winning best-selling author. His name is Jim Birkenstadt, but many know him as the rock and roll detective. Jim has served as a consultant to the Beatles, Apple Corps, George Harrison, the Traveling Wilburys, the Band, Garbage, and many more. He authored The Beatle Who Vanished, Black Market Beatles, and classic rock albums Nirvana, Nevermind. And all three books have been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Library and Archives. Now, his latest book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, examines the secrets, myths, legends, hoaxes, conspiracies, and the wildly inexplicable events that are such an intriguing part of rock and roll history. Through Jim's investigations, he challenges some of rock's most enduring legends. So in this episode, we'll discuss just some of the compelling chapters, such as who really discovered Elvis Presley? And did the CIA play a role in the attempted assassination on Bob Marley? We'll also uncover the secrets concealed within Nirvana's Nevermind album, the mythology of the traveling Wilburys, and we'll discuss whether or not the Beach Boys actually did steal a song from Charles Manson. So for all you music lovers that also love a good mystery, this is a book you need to read. All right, let's get into it. You look like an angel, walk like an angel. Talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are, devil in disguise. Mm-hmm. You fool me with your kisses. You cheated and you schemed. Heaven knows how you lied to me. You're not the Like an angel, walk like an angel, talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in the sky. Jim, thank you for coming on my rock moment. Thank you, man. It's great to be here. I'm, I I listen to your show, so it's it's a real pleasure for me to be on here with you. Oh, that's great to hear. Well, I know you're a busy guy. I mean, you're an award-winning, best-selling author, producer, music historian. You've got your own consulting business. And then above all, in March of this year, you released Mysteries in the Music Case Close, where you uncover the lost history and mysteries that are hidden within decades of popular music. Right, right. It's just been, it's been a blast. I mean, looking into stories that um, we've all heard about maybe in the past, but never knew definitively what happened. It was just a, a real, it was a challenge, but a lot of fun to try to dig into these stories. Right. This is right up my alley, but I also know in reading it that it was no small feat on your part. Right. Well, you know, I had to find, I had to locate people who are still alive and then, you know, memories fade over time or they change. We shape them a little differently. There's, they're a little slippery. So 
you have to pay close attention to what people are saying and see, you know, look into their motives and such. As a former trial attorney, that's what you do when you take people's depositions or you cross-examine them in court. Uh, and so I, I felt that I had the right tools to do that and then to locate uh, government documents, um, just all types of lost material, uh, studio recording, data sheets and things like that, old articles, just anything that can help get you to the truth. Sure. Well, you did an incredible job. And and before I, I do want to get into the book, but before we do, I have to ask you about your consulting firm, Rock and Roll Detective. How did this even come about? I mean, I know you'd been in the corporate world for a while and then you made the switch. It's so interesting. I had to ask. <laughs> well, I think it's probably what I always wanted to do. And so I feel like I'm you know, reliving my youth again, because as a kid growing up, you know, maybe other uh, buddies of mine were collecting baseball cards and looking on the backs of cards at all the statistics. I was looking on the back of, of vinyl LPs. I wanted to know who produced it, who, who engineered it, who sang the high harmony, anything you could get out of that, because we didn't have the internet at the time. Right. So, and you know, the Beatles, when the Beatles came out, um, you know, you had these teen fanzines. So they were really, I think, geared towards uh, young girls who were big fans of the Beatles. And it was stuff like, uh, what's your favorite ice cream, Paul? Or what color is your hair, John? And so that didn't provide any real information. It really wasn't until Rolling Stone magazine started publishing in the late 60s that we started to get any sort of reliable information. But also I used to go to the movie theaters where they had these, um, I think it was called British Pathé newsreels. And so once a week, uh, this Pathé company would clip together news from around the world. And it almost always included the Beatles. So I would always get to the movie early so I could see if there was any news about what the Beatles were doing. Uh, because again, we just didn't have this luxury of technology today. And so that led into essentially this love of music, love of, yeah. of excavating and finding the, the backstory, which created the rock and roll detective. Right. And, and in eighth grade, I think that was the point where it hit me. Like, this isn't just fun. This is getting serious because uh, it had been reported in all the major news outlets that Paul McCartney was dead. And they weren't sure whether it was a conspiracy or whether it had really happened. And no one could find Paul at the time. He was hiding on his ranch in Scotland. And, and so uh, there were a lot of stories about all these clues on the album covers and things or clues in the records themselves where um, you could... Uh, well, in the old days with a record player, you'd take the little drive mechanism off so that you could go backwards with the record in your finger while the needle was on there. So you could hear the backwards clues uh, like Paul is dead, miss him, miss him, miss him. So what happened was I was just telling my friends about it in eighth grade, uh, I don't know, some sort of early politics type class or something. And the teacher overheard me and he said, Birkenstadt, I want you to um, present to the class 
the complete story of this Paul is dead conspiracy uh, a week from now and tell them all about the clues and do this whole thing for the class. And that got, I was so excited about that because to me that wasn't work. That was really cool and fun. So I did that. And I think that was really the, the jump off point for me to do the this. impetus but, for it all. Yeah. But then I think getting, after I wrote my first book, Black Market Beatles, which came out in the early 90s, uh, I discovered that the Beatles company, Apple, that Neil Aspinall, their CEO, uh, had it on his desk while they were working on the Beatles anthology uh, albums. And so those were all, you know, basically a collection of bootlegs. And my book was all about the Beatles bootlegs, how they how they leaked out, uh, what the bootleggers would do to get them published, et cetera. And then a chapter on, you know, what are the most interesting and unique Beatle bootlegs? So I think mm. that was the first time the Beatles heard about me. Uh, and, you know, ever since eighth grade, I thought, geez, I'd love to work for the Beatles. And then it, in 1998, I, volunteered to work for George Harrison on a project he was doing at the time. And it just sort of snowballed from there. He then recommended me to the Beatles before he passed away. And then I started doing work for them and for George and his estate. Ah, okay. So that's how it all came about because I know that you had also worked on the uh, Peter Jackson documentary, which came out on Disney plus last year. And I know that that was a documentary that was decades in the making. Right. In fact, um, that was my first project for the Beatles and Apple was this Get Back documentary. It was long before Peter Jackson was involved. Uh, and I, I want to say they contacted me in January of 2002. Wow. And that was my, my first assignment was to do a lot of um, audio excavation and archiving and, and also to look for um, some of the lost audio reels that would then have to be synced up with the video to, you know, so that those scenes could be used if, if they wanted to in the fil final film. Wow. I mean, I knew that I, I, you have to know that something like that is a big undertaking. It would take quite a long time, but decades. Well, I don't think it was so. I don't think the work itself took decades. I think that. Um, Apple wanted to make sure that they ultimately found the right person who could tell the story, retell the story in, in really in the way it happened, which uh, unfortunately the original Let It Be film, the way it was edited and such by the director, Michael Lindsay Hogg, created the impression, I think, that the Beatles didn't like each other anymore and they were mm. just slugging through this and it was really hard deal. And, you know, it seemed like, Oh, they can't wait to get out of that room and go home. And yet having listened to, I don't know, 80 hours of bootleg outtakes long before this project even started in the two uh, thousands, I knew that that really wasn't the correct telling of the story. And ultimately, they found uh, Peter Jackson and they, you know, they, they had the right formula. And then it became a good time because 
prior to that, you know, the Beatles themselves would look at that film and, and it was like, oh, I don't know if we really want to relive this. Hmm. But they saw all this wonderful new footage that had been sitting in cans for years and saw how much they really did love the experience, love each other. You know, there were little, like any band or any family, you know, there's always going to be little ripples, but but they were a solid band. And, and the only way they could have done that wonderful live concert on the rooftop is if they all liked each other and all worked together. And they sure proved that. It was freezing cold up there that day. Oh, God, it looked it. Weren't they yeah. all wearing, I read something that they were all wearing their wives and their girlfriends' jackets. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I'm pretty sure John was. Uh, and I think Paul just had on kind of a sport coat. Ringo had on a red, um, like, raincoat. Yes. A Mac. Yeah. Yes. I thought it was Maureen's yeah. or something. It, well, but, it could have been. could have been, yeah. Speaking of George Harrison, you know, you getting to work with him, how was he? As a person, um, because I think I have a particular fascination with George because I think everybody looks at him as the quiet beetle, but he was really right. the existential beetle. Um, you know, he was the one who seemed to be really searching for the meaning of life before any of them. Very spiritual. Exactly. Yeah, I like to say that he was the conscience of the Beatles. Oh. He clearly didn't. Um, he didn't play the role of PR man at all. He always was very honest with his feelings and how he observed things and, and what he thought of them. Uh, just a very stand-up guy, but one of the funniest people. You know, everyone thinks, oh, he's a quiet, serious Beatle. But he, you know, I think it more, more people came to understand that George was really wanting to, to be funny and have fun, tell jokes when the Traveling Wilburys came out. Because, uh, and as I, I have a chapter in the book about the Traveling Wilburys, and they really just wanted to have a good time with friends. It wasn't, a, they left their egos at the door. They were all superstars. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, Jeff Lynn, and George Harrison, all in the same band, making great music. And it was really just about having fun. Right. And and I think George that that's where a lot of people maybe started to realize that George is really a, a great guy, a funny guy, very spiritual guy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you know, let's get into the book. Um, I understand the need the need to write this book. You know, there are so many rock stories where the line between fact and fiction is blurred and then it's perpetuated by the media and the, the press who haven't taken the time, as you said, to really research the stories, properly do their due diligence. Um, a mm -hmm. lot of false stories were put out that the public just, you know, the headline readers eat up yeah. and they adopt his truth. So yeah. this book attempts to set the story straight in a number of areas. And in reading it, there were moments where I thought, my goodness, and like you alluded to, the amount of research 
and hours of interviews uh, that went into setting these stories straight is really impressive. So let me ask you, what did go into this in terms of time and research? Well, I would say it probably took four or five years to find everyone who was alive that I really needed to interview uh, and also to gain their cooperation. And in some cases, just to find them. Here's a This is an interesting story. When I went to write the chapter about um, did the Beach Boys steal a song from psychotic cult leader Charles Manson, um, which, you know, if you go on the Internet or you go to blogs, it'll say, yep, they sure did. It sounds just the same. And and Charles Manson said they stole it. And, and the Beach Boys have never talked about it. And I always thought, isn't it funny? Everyone believes the psychotic cult leader <laughs> that he must be right. Um, but, you know, copyright law is somewhat complex and I worked in that area. So I actually was looking forward to that chapter. But before you can get to how the law applies, you need to know what the facts are. And I found that there, that when Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys, uh, was sitting in the room with Charles Manson discussing this song uh, and and Wilson's interest in the song, there was one other person in the room, and his name is Greg Jacobson. Well, Greg was very close with Dennis Wilson in his lifetime, and they, they worked together, they hung out together, they were good friends. But um, after... The Manson murders, when the trial came up, Greg Jacobson actually had to testify against Charles Manson. As a result, I think he just has decided to live way off the grid. He's not in Los Angeles anymore. Uh, he's hard to find. So I looked all through um, Google. You know, most people stop at page one, but I fall down the rabbit hole and get to page 24, 25. <laughs> and right near that, right, right before I was about to give up, and there was a there was a little mention that Greg Jacobson had worked on one one or two tracks with Taylor Hawkins, uh, the late drummer of the Foo Fighters. So Butch Vig, who is a good friend of mine, uh, he's a Grammy-winning producer, worked with Nirvana, Foo Fighters, etc., and who he wrote the foreword for my right. book. Uh, I called him up and I said, hey, um, you're friends with Taylor. Can you ask him if he has Greg Jacobson's phone number? Because he's the only living witness because Manson and Wilson have died. And I'd love to know what went on in that room in the conversation uh, so that I can then proceed to dig further. And five minutes later, Butch called me back and said, Taylor said, good luck. And here's the phone number. So thank you, Taylor Hawkins, rest in peace. And that wow. was the only way I think I could have um, really gotten all the facts I needed because he was around a lot of the time with Manson and Wilson and uh, even other times with Manson. And uh, he really knows what went on. And he's got, a, you can tell what people have, you know, some people have very sharp recollection and you, you hear really interesting details. So, you know, they really, that's etched in their mind and who wouldn't have some really strong memories if they had been involved with Manson before the murders. Of course. So uh, he was very helpful. 
Well, then then let's let's start out with you know the Manson murders and Dennis Wilson here because you know there are several chapters in this book, and I don't mm-hmm. know how you went about narrowing down what stories you were going to tell. I'm sure a lot of it had to do with the availability of the information, like you said. Yes, um, yeah. But the one that definitely needed to be covered was uh, the story of Dennis Wilson and Charles Manson. And did Dennis Wilson definitively steal Charles Manson's work? Now, the song in question by Manson was Cease to Exist. Correct. When you read those lyrics, creepy is an understatement. Yes. Creepy, and they, you know, they foreshadowed Manson's ability to brainwash mostly female followers. Sure. You know, he had a few followers. Uh, some of those lyrics are pretty girl, pretty, pretty girl, cease to exist, just come and say you love me, give up your world. And, you know, that was one of his, his principal. I know, me too. It's, it's one of his principal, what I would say, uh, is a, a cult recruitment song. Sure. And so it's interesting because the you asked before, you know, how do you choose? How do you narrow it down? First of all, some things you can't do because there's no one left and there's just not enough information to solve the case. And that was my goal in each of these chapters. But then, you know, you get behind the scenes and you go, well, why? Let's go back further than the day they, you know, talked about this creepy song why did dennis wilson need to hang out with charles manson and why did charles manson want to attach himself to dennis wilson well manson had learned an amalgam of philosophies religions and ideologies while in prison for 15 years uh and then he also learned um how to play a few chords on the guitar. So he was able to very quickly, you know, take four chords and and then write the music and turn it into a song. The songs were about his concept of starting, you know, basically a, a quote family or cult once he got out. And the idea of getting signed to a record label would allow him to reach a much larger audience and maybe grow his crazy cult. And so, of course, you think about it now, you wouldn't need a, you don't need a record label. You don't need a book publisher. You have social media. But back then you had to, you know, go to the gatekeepers and prove to them that you are talented. And Charlie met a guy in prison who did get him his first tryout at a record label, which I think I, I talk about in the book and mm-hmm. he just was never comfortable in the studio uh he was sort of antsy and then he had all these you know girls dancing around naked and they were all on acid and it's kind of hard to even imagine nowadays but that's how it was back then in studios and he seemed to have trouble with authority as well too so that dynamic yeah. with the producer telling him what to do it seemed that exactly. he had a little bit of trouble taking orders yeah i think he definitely had a chip on his shoulder in that way and, and then so he needed someone like dennis who had clout who was signed to a record label and in and he didn't know this at the time but the the Beach Boys had actually just started their own boutique label 
where any of the Beach Boys, with the permission of the others, could sign an artist and bring them into their uh, small label. And then the question is, well, why does Dennis Wilson need to hang out? Why does he need anything from Charles Manson? Now, keep in mind, Charles was just sort of a happy-go-lucky guru at the time. He wasn't uh, a murderer yet that we know of at that time. Uh, and what was happening in the Beach Boys, as you probably know as a um, music history teacher, is that Brian Wilson was starting to have mental health issues. He was doing acid. He was laying in bed a lot. And here was the guy that was the producer and the principal writer of all the hit songs of the Beach Boys. And now Capitol Records says, time for another album, boys. And the other members of the Beach Boys realize, hey, we're going to all have to step up and write some songs for this album because Brian just can't do it right now. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. uh, when uh, when Dennis Wilson saw that Charles Manson could just make up a song on the spot, he became interested and he actually paid for him and Greg Jacobson to go to a studio and record a bunch of Manson's demos. So it's really interesting to to figure out, well, what were the motives of the individuals before this even this transaction either did or didn't take place. Right. I mean, it was really a give-take situation. Um, Mm -hmm. They were very much both getting something out of it. And I found it very interesting that Manson was more angry about the changes to the song, essentially, rather than not being credited on the 2020 album, where Never Learn Not to Love, which was, you know, the changed... um, lyrics oh, and uh you know exactly. overall exactly it it i just found that interesting that he didn't he didn't mind you know not getting the credit it was more the yeah. integrity of the song that was changed that upset him right and you know he said i think he said something i have a quote in the books and they're like you, you don't change my words man you know you yes. if you do that you're running with the devil or something like yes, that yes he said he said i actually wrote him down because they sent oh. a chill down my spine you had written that he said don't change the words if you change the words my shadows run fast oh come there on that scares me right there <laughs> <laughs> me too <laughs> I'm glad he's no longer with us. Oh, man. He is supposed to exist. You probably <laughs> felt that on a daily basis as you were doing your research. I have to say of all the chapters in the book, that was the one where I had to take days off because it was so dark and such a creepy story that I just couldn't, you know, I'm a pretty happy guy, so I just couldn't do it every day. That was a really tough chapter but you know eventually i plowed through it sure but it was very interesting to you know to talk to some of these people to you know the engineer who also recorded um charlie manson at uh brian wilson's house in their basement studio and he says yeah he pulled a knife on me but he said you know if only manson had been more patient he had some talent and he might have you know, gotten a record deal, but he, he wasn't very patient. Neil Young tried to get him a record deal too. I mean, look, you know, talent is sometimes in the eye of the beholder. And obviously some, you know, did think that, you know, there was 
some talent there, something that, that, you know, they could sell to Terry Melcher or whoever it was, but overall, it sounds like the need for money, um, and the bubbling anger. It's funny because when you say, you know, at this time he was just like a, you know, peace and love type guru. It sounds like the psycho in him was always there. He always had the capability to do this. And maybe the LSD and everything was just the instrument through which he acted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, also when ultimately he sees his song end up on a Beach Boys record, he's no better off than he was before. He's not getting a record deal. The Beach Boys have told Dennis, we're not going to, we're not going to sign this guy. He creeps us out. Uh, so they just keep kind of pushing him off. They go on tour, you know, to get away from him, whatever. Uh, and then, you know, Terry Melcher, who was a famous producer, takes a look at him and realizes he's not the right, uh, you know, not right for a record deal. And, and, and because he sees all these hungry people at, at uh, Manson's place, at their ranch, he gives them, you know, I don't know what it was, 50 or 100 bucks or something for food. And Manson goes back and tells his followers, oh, we have a deal. And this is the uh, this is my advance. Well, a real advance would, would have back then might have been ten to thirty thousand dollars, not right. not a hundred or two hundred for groceries. Uh, but that's what he told them, because, you know, when you're a cult leader, you can't let people think you failed them. Yeah. Uh, and so again, when that record deal didn't come through, it, he got very upset and then he's taken acid and then he, he's, he's also got a lot of racism inside of him. And, you know, he, he thinks that the black people are going to rise up and have a war with the white people. I mean, all these crazy things were going around at that time. The other thing that was interesting is that, you know, this wasn't the only strange thing happening in 1969 there were you know there was the paul is dead rumor in the fall uh there was um the rolling stones concert at altamont where a, a young man was stabbed to death by the hell's angels security yeah. people you know so that was a dark year 1969 in rock and roll very dark year and you know but the 60s, when we think about them, you know, we think about the the peace and love ethos and yeah. Dennis Wilson really exemplified that. And so here's my question for you. Um, and then I want to cover some of the other chapters, but there was never a contract really issued between, you know, Wilson and Manson. Um, obviously, that was a big oversight. But do you feel it was a sign of the times? You know, the relationship that, that had been built between them was initially one of love and acceptance and unfortunately mm-hmm. trust. And that oversight was a result of that. Right. And, you know, back then, I mean, uh, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, I was around back then. So uh, <laughs> you know, people would sit around, they're drinking wine and, and smoking weed and, and they decide to do something together. It was just a handshake. No, yeah. no, and, and even these people, you know, even Dennis Wilson, who was at a higher level, didn't think anything about just handing over some cash to Manson and saying, Hey, I, w- I would like, I'd like to use this song and, yeah. and I'd like to have it. And the problem is that um, the 
copyright law at the time required that was in force at the time of this discussion required that all uh, transfers of copyright in music be done with a written executed document where both parties sign. That never happened. So, um, you know, I'll leave it to the readers to uh, find out what the the legal conclusion was as well as uh, all the crazy facts that went on with the Beach Boys and Manson. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Okay, guys, let's get back to the interview.
I, I kind of want to jump back to um, the beginning of the book because you start out with Elvis, you know, one, one of my absolute all-time favorites um, and who you really dive into the question, who discovered Elvis Presley? And right. history credits producer Sam Phillips as the one who discovered Elvis. Phillips credits himself as the one who discovered Elvis, but there's a lot more to this story. Yes, there is. And it's interesting because, you know, Sam Phillips isn't around for me to have interviewed and, and neither is uh, Marion Teisker, his assistant. And now uh, Scotty Moore has passed away. Bill Black's passed away. Elvis Presley's passed away. So what I had to do was look at documents. I did, I did actually interview Scotty Moore about this long before this book took place. Uh, oh, over the, really? About three, I think three years before he died, we spent literally a hundred hours on the phone talking about his whole career. The, the idea was that later he and I would put out a book um, about, you know, told in his words about his time with Elvis. And uh, we just sort of ran out of time and, you know, and he passed away. So unfortunately that book didn't happen, but I used those, um, that information with him because he was very, uh, he kept talking to me about Marion Keisker, who was Sam's assistant and, and a pioneering woman in uh, radio and uh, sound engineering, which just, there just was no one like her at that time. And, and this was in the fifties. And what I decided to do was look at everybody's statements about these, this controversy of who really discovered him. And, and actually you can um, cross-examine somebody's statements, even though they made them to Rolling Stone 20 years ago. And, and here's an example. When Sam Phelps was taking all the credit and saying, well, Marion washed the floors and helped me paint the studio, um, and and she maybe misspoke when she said that she first, you know, recorded him and such. It never happened. But when people are twisting the story a little bit or slanting it, I discovered as a trial attorney that they sometimes embellish by adding new facts that weren't there. Mm. Now, what, they, what they're doing then is they're giving you an opportunity to say, okay, well, are these facts true? So when Sam Phillips, for example, was was sort of bragging to Rolling Stone that he deserves sole credit for discovering Elvis, he made the statement that I, I knew that I recorded him first uh, because he used to drive his electrical truck back and forth um, in front of my studio, getting up the courage to come inside. Well, at the time, uh Elvis Presley had not yet gotten that job. It didn't exist yet. And, uh, you know, so that a lot of times when people make these statements and add information, they show that they're lying about, you know, the whole thing, the, the credibility of their whole story tends to fall apart. Interesting. Now, with, with Marion, she made a lot of statements very close in time to the moments 
these things were happening. So, for example, when she was helping to promote the first single um, uh, by Elvis and Scotty and uh, Bill Black, she was going to the newspapers and some of the radio stations. And she was telling the story of how he first came in and spoke to him, uh, spoke to her. And she said, what, what do you sound like? And he said, I don't sound like nobody. <laughs> and she, she had a story of there was another woman that, that thought he was really cute and uh, was asking about him to Marion at the time. Well, those are, those are um, sort of, th those are so close to the time when things happen that in a courtroom, those sort of memories uh, take precedent over 30 year later statement when you're trying to, you know, make yourself look good. So, and then, you know, to top it off, when we get towards the end of uh, the chapter, you know, Elvis Presley solves the case himself at a press conference and then later at a social function right. uh, where he, he speaks about other people helping him to get where he was. And right. uh, Scotty Moore, I felt that Scotty Moore and uh, Bill Black also were very important in this discovery because Scotty Moore kept hounding Sam Phillips. Hey, what, what about that boy Marion said with the big, the big sideburns? You know, uh, I need a new singer and, you know, I'd like to test him out. And Sam said, well, have him over to your house. You know, if, if you think he's okay, then let me know. And, you know, and, and Scotty Moore gave me the entire sequence of what went on at his house uh, that day, the day before they went into the studio. So it really? it really helps when you can reach people when you, in that case, I also found a lot of studio notes, uh, a lot of early takes and things that, that you can derive clues from. Yeah. So. Well, that was an interesting story to me. And I had read that, you know, Elvis had originally gone into Sun Studios because, and I think, you know, maybe I was a headline reader at that point, but that he had gone in to make a record for his mother. Right. And you were able to, it, it from that point, disprove the dates because he went in July. And I believe you yeah. said that his mother's birthday was in April or something. Yeah, so I, I think that's what he maybe said, but I think that you know, why would you go in that early? I think he wanted to hear his voice on record. Right. Right. Yeah, that's my feeling on it. Yeah. But it's why wouldn't he? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, if you if you've been singing in church or you've been singing with the radio and you suddenly say, Hey, maybe I have a pretty good voice, but I better check it out, well then you would want to go go record it and hear your voice. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that that was the story he made up because there was no shame in that. But you know. It was all for the public, but it, the whole thing, I was absolutely riveted by that chapter, you know, waiting to get to the end of the final conclusion and all the evidence that you presented. And gosh, this Marion Keister, had, you know, she was a new character to me. Yeah, very interesting woman and, and uh, an unsung hero. And I, it's funny because I have found that a number of women um, who were maybe a little bit behind the scenes in rock and roll have been just sort of erased from history. I, if there's a way I can, you know, bring back the reputation of women who've done great things in rock and roll. That's one of my goals. Well, I would read that book. <laughs> <laughs>
from the Nimrod. I love it. I love it. That's your next one. The B. Well, that's all right, Mama. That's all right for you. That's all right, Mama. Just any way you do it, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. I want to um, I want to ask you about Bob Marley because you know he's an interesting character all the way around and you write about the 1976 uh, attempted assassination that was made on him and the rest of his band and his wife Rita um, when a bunch of gunmen stormed into their home uh, in mm-hmm. Kingston, Jamaica. And what's interesting is that you pro- you pretty much start out the story with Bob Marley's premonition about the assassination attempt and the voice mm-hmm. essentially that told him to stand his ground at that time. Yeah. And then you go into the assassination attempt itself um, as botched as it was. And it's right. very interesting to see how he reacted. He remembered that premonition and he stood his ground. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. He did a, like a TV interview. That's where that came from. And it, it was maybe six months or so after the attempt on his life. And he still remembered that uh, having that vision or that dream where he just didn't move. Imagine somebody is spraying bullets around the room and you just stand your ground. I mean, his, his own manager took five bullets in the back in the same right. kitchen. And it was, uh, I was told it was a pretty narrow kitchen. It may be that, the manager saved Bob's life because those bullets that were spraying, most many of them went into his back. Right. It's a weird time because our country was meddling in another country's politics. Right. And, and you know, the, ultimately we sent the CIA down there to try to overturn an election because the current leader was a democratic socialist. Uh, and the other other uh, politician running against him was a conservative figure. So at the time, Henry Kissinger wanted uh, our Secretary of State wanted the conservative to take over. And again, it, it also everything relates to money in this world. And sure. there were these big corporations that wanted to um, dig up all this bauxite so they could make aluminum for the United States. Uh, so that's kind of where it all started off. And, and once the CIA was down there, there were sort of clues that people believe led to the, led to the idea that the CIA wanted to knock off Bob Marley before this concert, which was meant to be a peaceful concert to bring both warring political parties together. Right. Because Michael Manley, who was a prime minister at the time, right, he was having dealings with Fidel Castro, which, of course, right. you know, set off a lot of flares for the U.S. Um, yes. And they were afraid that he was essentially or, or that he who I think he was against Siaga. Right. Um, yeah. The other party in terms of the election, and they were going to essentially co-op this Smile Jamaica concert that uh, Bob Marley was putting on. Um, which he wanted to be about peace, you know, 
um, they were essentially co-opting this concert and putting him in the middle of this political showdown. Yeah. It's a very interesting, interesting story. And it was also very disheartening um, to hear about how we were involved and the destabilization yeah. plan that was put into effect in Jamaica that we essentially outlined and executed. Yeah, it was just terrible. And um, it was really, I really wanted to get to uh, interview one of the CIA agents who was down there, who was um, posing as a diplomat, but was actually down there involved in this. And I had written off to both the Obama administration and the Trump administration under Freedom of Information Act to get those records. They both sent me the same dopey letter. We can neither confirm nor deny whether we have any <laughs> CIA documents about Bob Marley. So that means you do. <laughs> I mean, you do exactly. So I thought, well, I gotta figure out another way. So uh, I had a friend who was working on the radio at Fox News. She would do these little break-in national radio stories, and I said, "Isn't uh, Colonel Oliver North at Fox News doing some kind of war story show at the time?" And she goes, "Yeah." And so she connected me up with him. And we had a really interesting discussion and he became national security advisor under Ronald Reagan and told me that the first thing he did was went back and talked to Gerald Ford, who was the, wasn't the previous president before Reagan, but was the previous Republican president. Mm -hmm. So I guess these people go back to the previous person in their positions or who have information from their party and, and get some background information. And so we talked to Ford and then I said, Hey, you know, I'd love to see these records. He goes, well, Jim, they were declassified 20 years ago. They should, the government should be giving them to you. And I said, well, I understand the appeal process, but it takes like two years. And, you know, I don't want to delay the book waiting for whichever president decides to let me have these records that I'm entitled to. And he says, well, have you heard of this website called WikiLeaks? <laughs> I said, yes, I have, but I've never, never gone there. He goes, go there, you'll find them. And he was right. They were there. I found all the these top secret records. Then I was able to find this one key page where it said, they had a list of names, then it had their date of births, then it had what car they were driving in Jamaica. And then it had their fake diplomat title. And then it had their real CIA titles. And so I picked a guy that just had an unusual name and it had his middle name and Googled him. And he's retired living down south. And I called him up and said, hey, it's, it's the rock and roll detective. Can I interview you? <laughs> And he started laughing. He's like, what do I have to do with rock and roll? And I said, well, weren't you a, um, weren't you a diplomat in Jamaica in 1976 with the ambassador? And he goes, yes, I was. And I said, but weren't you also the CIA chief of station down there? And he started laughing and said, well, uh, um, how can I answer that without getting in trouble with my former employer? 
And I said, you just did. <laughs> so, uh, he was very helpful and, uh, you know, was one of the people that helped lead me to the correct conclusion, which I'll leave for the readers to uh, discover. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was one part of that chapter that I found, you know, particularly interesting. And it was that you laid out the contents of the manual, the CIA rules of a perfect assassination. Right. And you matched it up with the attempted assassination of Bob Marley. You know, you essentially yep. cross-checked, you know, um, in an attempt to pr- to prove or disprove that the U.S. was involved. And then involved, right. Yeah. And that was really fun to do. I don't, I don't know. That just sort of popped in my head. And I was like, oh, this sounds like something I might have done as a lawyer, you know, to convince the jury one way or another on something to compare a couple, two different things and, and that are related and uh, see how they see how they fall out. Right. Right. Well, there's yeah. a lot to digest in that chapter because it's about the assassination. And then subsequent to that, you know, obviously the um, the the cancerous cleats uh, soccer yeah. cleats that were given the to second alleged assassination. Yes. Yes. And yes. what's so interesting is that uh, Carl Colby was hired by uh, Marley's record label. He was a young man and a young filmmaker. But he happened to be the son of the CIA director. So, of course, people connecting the dots say he must have been the one that gave him the cleats, which cut his toe, which led to cancer. And I, of course, run through all of that as well. Uh, You know, through all, I mean, the coroner report, all these different things. Which is crazy because... One can contract cancer, to my knowledge, but... Well, I mean, and I think the other point, you know, is when when we read about the Russians poisoning somebody who some dissident and then they end up dying, it's usually like two days later. It's pretty instant poison. Right. It's not like let's give somebody cancer in their toe and in eight years they'll have written uh, more music about whatever they want that we don't agree with and they will have right. put it on go and on record i mean and then they'll die eight years later i mean that just doesn't sound uh, very logical to me no not at all not at all but you cover it all in this chapter so i love it <laughs> a lot of fun One last one I, w- I want to touch on because we, you know, George Harrison is the theme here, uh, which is the traveling Wilburys, the chapter on them, a Wilbury twist, mischief and mythology, whatever Wilbury, Wilbury. <laughs> <laughs> so in this chapter, I know you really um, dig deep and you investigate the pseudonyms of the traveling Wilburys as well as the f- fictional backstory, which was right. written by Derek Taylor. Yeah, originally. 
originally, which was so interesting. I mean, I thought to myself, Derek Taylor, that probably would have been the most fun project he'd ever worked on, you know, creating this, this whole backstory and history of the family, you know, and how they all came about because the traveling Wilburys upon listening to this chapter, you get the sense and and you alluded to it, you know, in the beginning, these five guys that were just having fun set aside the fact that they were all legends music legends they were just having fun and they were in on a joke that none of us were in on right right and and you know that came uh, i also bring up the fact that when they talk to the media they they put the media you know they they make fun of the media by answering these questions in a very silly way and then the guy goes did that really happen And, and they go yeah would we lie to you? <laughs> the media was like, they were just putty in the hands of George Harrison and the Wilburys. It's a really fun chapter um, because people don't really know the whole backstory. They don't know what went on in trying to get five different record labels to all agree to lend out their, their artists for a one-time project. I mean, that's that's almost unheard of. If you go back in time to the late 60s, uh, all these artists were friendly with each other. And, you know, the Beatles sang on a Rolling Stones song and um, Stones, I think a couple of the Stones sang on a Beatles song. And people, Eric Clapton played guitar on the White mm-hmm. Album. Yep. So at that time, lawyers and record labels, they were they just didn't have a system for loaning out their artists to other labels. And they wanted that exclusivity. If you're going to create something, create it for us so we can sell it. Um, So you saw a lot of pseudonyms being used in the 60s merely to get around those loopholes, but also to thank your friend for playing on your album. And it was an inside joke. So it was kind of cool that here they got to do it for a different reason, for just a fun reason. And I'll never forget, I mean, maybe other people too, when the first Wilbury song, Handle With Care, came out on the radio, the announcers were playing along with this game too. So they said, hey, there's this new song by a group called the Traveling Wilburys. Gee, it's, these people sure sound familiar. And each of the Wilburys, you know, sing a solo part on the track. And I'm sitting in my car in a parking lot listening to this. And I'm like, it's George Harrison. Whoa, he's a travel something traveling Wilburys. And I'm like, there's Bach Dylan. You know, these are voices that are and and Roy Orbison. I mean, these oh, are such so recognizable voices. I thought, mm-hmm. oh my God, this is gonna be a great album. How much fun is this? Oh. So it really wasn't. I talk about a uh they were gonna make a mockumentary about the Wilburys, and I talk about how that fell apart, never got made. I talk about how um, the traveling Wilbury guitars were, were the, the artwork for them was created. Just a lot of cool insider stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you had Jeff Lynn as Otis Wilbury. You had George Harrison as Nelson Wilbury. Uh, right. Lefty Wilbury was Roy Orbison. Charlie right. T was definitely Tom Petty. And then Lucky Wilbury was, of course, Bob Dylan. Bob. Yeah. So it's Such a lot of fun. Oh, it was a great chapter and really showcased 
George Harrison's personality and his humor in this one. I think yeah. it was a, a fun time for him. It seemed. I think it was. I, and, and you know, that I'm pretty sure they're the only super group that never broke up. You know, they died. Some of them died, but they never, they always talked about, we're going to have to get together sometime, make another one. Yeah. So I kind of like that too. They, they just left it open. They left it open. They all stayed friends. Well, it's all. There was so much we didn't even get to, you know, the mass marauders of 1969 and the, the secrets uh, concealed within Nirvana's Nevermind album. And there were so many things within that chapter that you covered that I had never heard of because, you know, for me, that came out when I was 12 years old and I still have a vivid memory of going to Blockbuster with my mother, getting the cassette single, which had the album cover on it. But, you know, I'm looking at this little teeny thing and I'm 12 years old and I'm looking at this little naked baby chasing after a dollar bill. What did this all mean? (laughs) I know. It's amazing. I mean, and I was just becoming friends with Butch Vig at Smart, he was here in Madison, Wisconsin at Smart Studios, his studio that he uh, started with Steve Marker um, and was going over there and hanging out. And, and he was, you know, he'd mentioned, yeah, I had uh, Billy Corgan in to do some singing today on Smashing Pumpkins. And uh, I had Nirvana in last week. And it was Back then, you know, none of these bands, no one had heard of any of these bands. He goes, you know, I don't know which which of these bands is going to make it or not. But he said, I just really like the um, the power of these songs and the dynamics. And, you know, they turn it, turn up their guitars to 11. And it was just early to be able to be there at that time was really uh, amazing. And it was really funny because when I was um, interviewing Butch Vig about this, the Nirvana things that you can read in this book. I remember um, he said, let's put on uh, this song, Territorial Pissings, which is from the Nevermind album. And he just turned my volume up as high as it would go. And he said, this is really ear splitting. Well, he wasn't kidding. It blew out my speakers <laughs> oh my gosh so it was a short-lived uh discussion because he blew out the speakers and then we took the cd of his early mixes and we just put it on some little portable thing because the stereo had died but i think it was time for those speakers to be replaced anyway. <laughs> thanks nirvana <laughs> yeah I did want to ask you, was the impetus for this chapter, the fact that you had written um, a book or you co-authored the book, Nevermind Nirvana, which was about the creation of the Nevermind album. Right. And, you know, that book had come out a long time ago in, in, I think, the late 90s. 
And uh, there were just some more things that I wanted to get to and put out there. And I just thought, well, I think this fits in nicely because it's the mysteries that are found inside this record and all the oddities, like the the hidden song. And why did why did the hidden song, it was so well hidden, it got left off the first time around, things like that. Um, just wanted to go a little, dig a little deeper because uh, I really, you know, I had grown up with classic rock from, say, the mid-60s through the, you know, part of the 80s. And then, you know, music kind of changed. There was all this uh, sort of using keyboards for every instrument and synthesizers and things. I wasn't too keen on. But then it just seemed like when Butch Vig started working with Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and others, it just felt like a, a whole rebirth of real rock and roll. And sure. uh, I, I, I'm totally into the whole 90s alternative music as well. Yeah, but it all goes back to the Beatles, it seems, because you do also touch on the fact that Kurt Cobain was a huge fan. You he know? was a huge fan and uh, didn't want to double track his voice until Butch said, well, uh, John Lennon always double tracked his voice. And from then on, Kurt Cobain was willing to double track his voice so he could be like John Lennon. We'll stop there, you know, in terms of the book um, and let everybody else, uh, you know, take a look and see what else is in there because there are several chapters, many we didn't get to. It is such a fun read, such a compelling read, and I'm going to put the link in the show notes so everyone knows where to get it. Um, But speaking of rock moments, you're on my rock moment, Jim, you know, I'm sure in all the books you've written and the documentaries you've been part of and the investigations you've been part of, there's probably some memorable moments in all those years. Are there any that stand out to you? Well, one jumps out at me. I uh, think that it was uh, I worked for Apple and the Beatles on the um, Cirque du Soleil love show the actual live show. In yes. And they asked me, my assignment was uh, from Neil Aspinall, find any types of audio of the Beatles joking around, uh, maybe talking to each other in the studio, funny stuff there, uh, any funny cracks they made at press conferences. But the dates of these recordings must be between March and September of 1965. Well, Jeez. so I went to, went to my database and pulled out all the stuff, started listening to it, and um, found some really great audio. So then I was invited, my wife and I were invited to the, the grand premiere of Cirque du Soleil. And um, they also invited us to the Beatles VIP after party which was just amazing. So 
<laughs> I was, uh, oh, before we went downstairs for the show and then the party, my wife said, now, I don't want you taking pictures or asking for autographs or being a geek. I'm like, no, no, I have to be, I have to be my, I have to be really cool. Cause I worked on this. I can't be doing that. I said, you're right. Good advice though. I appreciate it. Yeah, and this was in the age of the little, uh, those little flip phones. So you couldn't take a good picture anyway, but we were at the party, the VIP after party and all the Beatles friends and music musicians, etc., are there. And, uh, I'm friends with Jim Keltner. And so I introduced my wife to him and, and his wife was there, Cynthia Keltner. And so she, uh, and Holly started chatting and then, I was chatting with Jim Keltner and all of a sudden this like really cool looking rock guy. I didn't recognize him comes up to Jim Keltner and they start chatting. So I'm just kind of there while the other, you know, two sets of people are talking and Ringo Starr goes by and he flashes the peace sign. And then Robbie Shankar went by uh, Tony Bennett said, hello. And I was like, this is just so much fun. I can't believe it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm literally died and gone to rock and roll heaven. And then uh, Jim Keller said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Jim. I uh, forgot to introduce you to my friend, Jim Birkenstadt. This is John, John Densmore. This is Jim Birkenstadt. And I said, you're John Densmore of the Doors? And my wife looked at me because she told me not to freak out. But she said it about the Beatles. She didn't say it about the Doors. <laughs> there and you go. So I'm all freaked out and nervous. And John Densmore goes, wait, you're Jim Birkenstead? So <laughs> that completely cracked me up because he just, he was trying to relax me. Which yeah, yeah, weird. okay. And it was so funny. He didn't know me from left field, <laughs> you know. So after that, I was able to have a normal conversation, but it didn't. It was such an organic thing that, you know, to be able to meet a great drummer of a band that I so love was just one of those moments where I didn't control my emotions. So, it, but when he said, you're Jim Birkenstead, that, that, <laughs> I realized, okay, <laughs> we're back to just being two guys talking now. So that oh. was one of my favorite moments. And, and by the way, if you were to do a volume two, there is so much mystery around Jim Morrison's passing. There is. There is. Well, I mean, you could do a whole book on on the 27 Club, all the various rock sure. stars you know, sure. that passed away. Um, I just think that, you know, it was hard enough to do the uh, Manson chapter that, you know, having to write a, a book about all these great artists that died so young might be pretty depressing for me to write and it might be depressing for people to read read and and again you don't know whether um you can find the answers either i mean that that's why i put case closed mysteries in the music case closed because Mm -hmm. in this case anyway i wanted to definitively give the readers the answers because so often on tv we see shows called unsolved mysteries well here's another mystery and uh, that, that just doesn't do it for me. I want people yeah, to Yeah, there's no know. resolution. Yeah, and with so many um, blogs floating around out on, online that, that just make statements that aren't substantiated, I said, you know, I, maybe I can at least correct some of these 
stories and and get to you know resolve them for people so yeah. their the truth has finally come out. But I, I have no doubt that the next book will be uh, some sort of mystery. It might be a single mystery or it might be a volume two, as you say. Oh, we'll have to have you back on when that comes out. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to be back on. Thank you. Oh, that's so great. Well, I have to ask you, what's your favorite Beatles album? Hmm. I would say, well, everybody's an authority when it comes to the Beatles. But you really are. <laughs> I mean, I work for them. But I, my favorite Beatle album is actually Abbey Road, the last one to... Uh, Mine too. Know, really? Yes. I mean, I like the two sides are different, you know, the individual songs on side A and the the medley on side B where they string all the songs together. Plus, you get that jam at the end called yeah. The End. Yep. Oh, that's, that's one of my favorites. I love that you said that. Abbey Road. See, it just proves that I do have good taste. <laughs> yeah. And good karma. And good karma, too. And first right. first concert you ever went to? First concert, uh, this shouldn't come too, too much as a surprise, was George Harrison in 1974 at Chicago Stadium. And uh, I had to, my dad said, you cannot drive down to Chicago Stadium, bad neighborhood, don't take my car. He went off with my mom to dinner in their other car. I called my buddy Gary next door and we got in the car. We stole a Camaro and we buzzed down there. We didn't have tickets. We, we asked the parking guy, where can we get some scalper tickets? And he said, do you see that little wooden hut in the parking lot? Um, go through that door. So we thought, well, this hut, it's not even big enough for one person to stand in. But what it was, it was covering up steps that went down underneath Chicago Stadium. And we went down there and there was just a single light bulb with a string. And there was this guy named Beefy behind the desk. Of course. And then there were all... All these little gang member kids, you know, waiting for him to give them orders. And he said, what do you want? So we were wondering if you had any tickets for tonight's George Harrison show. I said, yeah, how much money do you have? So I had hidden one dollar in my sock. And the rest. so between the two of us, we had $15. And we, and we put it all together. So we have $15. He goes, I like the hat you're wearing. He said this to my friend, Gary. If you give me the hat and the $15, I'll give you the two tickets. And Gary whispers, I can't give him the hat. That's my dad's hat. He wears it for Brick Lane. I said, we're going to die if you don't give him the hat. <laughs> so he took the hat off. I said, you can just pretend you don't know where it went. They gave him the hat, the $50. We ran up the stairs, ran out of there, and, and then we were able to watch the concert. Oh my gosh, what a story. The last the ending of the story is many years later I got to meet um Ravi Shankar uh, backstage at one of his concerts and I told him that story and he he knew about me working for the Harrisons but I said the very first show was you and George and you know I told him how I stole my dad's car and Ravi after he hears the story he's like rubbing his chin or something and he says well you didn't really steal his car you gave it back right and i said yeah you're right i didn't steal my car i gave it back <laughs> I put it I back like in the garage. <laughs> yeah so he 
He's he's another funny guy. He's very humorous. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Really good. What a great story. And of course, it's very apropos that it was uh, George Harrison. And then 20 years later, <laughs> would have known, right? Yeah, I would get to work with him and his family. They're a wonderful family and yeah. so talented and creative. Oh, Jim, thank you for coming on and sharing your stories and this incredible book. Um, you've written a number of books, though, so I want people to check out all of them. Um, but thank I do appreciate you coming on My Rock Moment. Well, thanks very much for having me on, Amanda. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. Being beat up and battered around Being sent up and I'm being shot down You're the best thing that I've ever found Situations changeable, situations tolerable. But baby, you're a dope handle me with care. I'm so tired of being lonely. I still have some love to give. Won't you show me that you really care? Okay, a big thank you to Jim Birkenstaff for coming on My Rock Moment. Now, a link to his book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, and the accompanying Spotify playlist are in the show notes. You can also check out his website, rockandrolldetective.com. As founder of Rock and Roll Detective, Jim's firm offers a number of specialized and confidential services to music artists, record labels, music download sites, TV and film productions, auction houses, museums, and more. What a cool job he has. Jeez. All right, that's it for now. Thank you for listening, everyone. I'm wishing you all a very happy and healthy 2023, and we will see you at the next episode. your kitchen the upgrade it deserves with clearview cabinetry clearview cabinetry starts as a kitchen built for now and grows with you as life changes it's flexible by design with full access cabinet construction so you can go from doors to drawers for storage that works when you need it get an appointment free design consultation and explore all our cabinet options on display in our kitchen showroom and save big money now at menards save big money at menards